Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. At the time, I didn't quite know what I was doing, but by jumping right in, not being afraid to make mistakes, and surrounding myself with people I could learn from, I had no choice but to figure it out. Well, I'm ready to be fearless again. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. In fact, it's different for everyone, but there is a common thread. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order, and yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Before each interview, I thought it would be insightful to not only bring my perspective as a Gen Xer, but to have a quick chat with a rising millennial who is on her own unique path to greatness. My hope is that she will one day pass the torch and mentor others. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. I'd like to introduce you all to Emily Weisman. She is a social media strategist at my company. And I love having her there. She brings so much great insight to the team, and she is just always such a pleasure to work with. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to be a part of this. I've never been a part of a podcast before, um, but I was nervous leaving the office to come here and participate, and now I think they're, my nerves are totally gone, and I'm really excited to kind of be here in the beginning and watch the entire podcast take off. And I know that all of us women at the Woo are so kind of honored to be involved and also feeling empowered. We're, we're pumped. You know, when I first um, asked a lot of the different women who work at the company to be a part of this, a few were very nervous. They thought, well, I could never do anything like that. That's very much out of my comfort zone. And slowly as we continue down this journey, a few people stepped up and decided that they wanted to be a part of it. And I just love watching people kind of come out of their comfort zones. I can relate on the podcast level, but also picking up my life and moving to a new state was the most uncomfortable thing that I could have ever done. Um, and I feel like if I can do that, I can do anything. So, Well, speaking of pushing out of your comfort zone, today we will be interviewing Chelsea Grayson, the former CEO of American Apparel. We'll ask her about the bold moves she made to help put her on the path to success. Hey, Chelsea. So happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm excited to be one of your first guests. Before I get into your crazy, amazing life, I want to learn about young Chelsea. Mm -hmm. um, I hear that you kind of knew from a very young age what you wanted to do. I just want to know, were you always such a go-getter as a kid? Um, you must have been, you know, the bossiest kid in class. Yeah, I was the bossiest kid in class. And yes, you can verify with my mother. Driven, just a self-starter. From what age did you think that you kind of noticed that quality about yourself? really from nursery school, probably, because my friends would complain that I was too bossy. That was the biggest complaint. So they'd get sick of me after a while and have to go home because I just had to control everything and make all the rules and run the whole thing. So yes. What I've learned is it's usually the bossy kids that become the bosses when they grow up, right? By the way, bossiness is just a precursor to leadership. Later on, you sort of mature to sort of mid-level leadership where you're learning that bossing is really delegating. And then when you really become a senior leader, as you well know, that bossiness becomes collaboration with a strong, firm, you know, sort of overseeing aspect. I, so couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Evolution. So that's fine. How old were you when you realized maybe being a lawyer was something that was right for you? Was there someone who put that in your head? Did it come from you? Yeah. I mean, my grandfather for sure, um, was the one who, when I don't know, I was four or maybe six, I can't even remember how old I was, would just tell anybody who would listen that I was going to be a, a Philadelphia lawyer. You know, Philadelphia lawyer is a very specific phrase, you know, for lawyers who like to set the rules and then, you know, try to enforce those rules. You know, it's about, um, 
Well, I mean, he really, he originally sort of came up with that because I would come home after school and my grandparents would normally be there. And, you know, like I said earlier, I didn't need anyone to tell me to do my homework or anything like that. But as sort of a reward or incentive, my grandfather and I would play blackjack for an hour or so before or after I sort of got into my schoolwork. We talked more about how to apply the rules than we actually played the game. Very you know, interesting. Yeah. So, he, so saw, I, he saw he saw what your path was. Yeah, you know, and then he saw how I was sort of able to riff a little bit, you know, once I kind of got the rules down and I sort of made him follow them and then I was sort of able to riff a little bit, you know, and color outside the lines and which is also a really important part of being a lawyer later on, you know. Right. So you're not always just saying no to your clients, you're saying yes, but, you know, here's what we have to do to be, you know, to kind of play within the rules but be flexible so interesting that he could see that path for me, you know, because he was already not with us by the time I became a lawyer and he somehow saw that, but I didn't see it for a while. You know, it's interesting you say that, um, my daughter is 14 years old and she has somehow decided that she wants to be a lawyer. God help Very, very foreign to me. Her dream is to go to Harvard law school, which is obviously very, very ambitious. And I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell you where her inspiration came from, but it was from watching the movie Legally Blonde. I love that movie. You love that movie. She ended up being a great lawyer. Why is Um, that embarrassing? She watched that movie, and after it, she kind of stood up and said, Mom, I'm going to Harvard Law. And ever since then, it's been a couple years, and she's so serious about it. So it's just funny how, you know, to, to think where the inspiration can spark from. <laughs> the way you're talking about her, though, is the way that... Do you remember... You've seen that movie, right? Yeah, of course. And do you remember when the boy for the ex-boyfriend sees her in the hallway and he's like, what are you doing here? And she said, I go here. Yeah, he said, I, you go here? I do remember. I go here. That's, how, like, you're, exactly. <laughs> that's how you're acting like the boyfriend. Exactly. Your daughter's like, no, I, I am going to go there. All right, let's fast forward to high school. Um, so, I mean, I think probably my yearbook... You know, my senior yearbook caption says it all where I said, you know, they asked us all to sort of envision where we'd be, you know, in the years after graduation. I remember if it was five or 10 years at this point, but sort of where do you see yourself? And I, you know, I didn't know exactly what I was going to be doing, but I said, I see myself, you know, in a high rise downtown in the corner office running something, you know, it was something like that. So I didn't know exactly what that job was going to be, but I knew I wanted to lead And, you know, I knew that that's sort of, it was going to be in business somehow or in the corporate world. And And it was an all glass, beautiful office with a view of the entire downtown cityscape. By the way, believe it or not, I wish I would have brought a picture. I ended up in exactly that office. So you have to just visualize it and make it happen is what you're saying. There's something to that. And I'm not getting into the smushy, weird spiritual side of that. I'm saying you can, you know, if you visualize something enough and every single day you're doing something to get to that end game, you know, you can manifest that for yourself. I totally agree you know, with just you. Just don't lose track. I mean, it's when I got to Jones Day, because that's where I had that office every year in my performance evaluations. And I used to tell this to my mentees, I never lost sight of the end of every evaluation, they'd say, well, is there anything else you want to talk about or any other questions or anything you want us to know? And I'd just say, I want to remind you that I want to make partner at this firm. This was even in the second and third years of practicing. Wow. You were that bold. Seven years away. Yeah. I want to make partner at this firm. Uh, Can you tell me if, how to be on track? Am I on track? Is there a track right now? Because I felt like if I made them owners in my journey, they'd at least feel vaguely responsible for, if not making me a partner, at least telling me, listen, kid, it's not going to happen, so you should go somewhere else, because I also didn't want to waste my time. I love that you put it out there. It reminds me of a scene from the show Mad Men. Did you ever watch that? No, I never. Well, I'm the one, and you know, I haven't seen Game of Game of Thrones either. No, you haven't. Well, there's mm-hmm. a scene in Mad Men where you know it's a very male-dominated industry back then, advertising, and there's this one female copywriter who works there, and I think somebody was fired. A male was fired, and the corner office was open, and everybody was too scared to you know ask for the office, and so <laughs> no, I would have asked for it back then. Just went up to her bosses when everybody wouldn't, and just said, yeah. you know, hey, I want the corner office. And because she was bold enough to do it, they gave it she to her when it. all the guys asked why it was given it to her. The answer was like, because she asked. True story. That's how I got my corner office. I had other partner offices the whole time. And then at some point, and I'll tell you his name because it's an absolutely true story. This, there was a partner named John St. Clair. 
And I worked with him a lot and I knew that he was going to be moving on. He was retiring. He was very senior and he had this gorgeous corner office. And I knew way ahead, it was like a pocket listing, you know, because he and I were working together. So I knew way ahead he was going to retire. And I went to the head of the office and I said, when that office opens up and John is gone, I want to put a bid in to get that office. And there were some other people that ended up asking for it as well. But because I was the first and I sort of repeatedly asked him about it, he told me in the end, that's why I gave you that office. That's an amazing uh, lesson for people to learn. I mean, sometimes if you are just bold enough to ask for something and you're kind of the first to get there, you can make it happen. Okay. So you graduate high school and where'd you go from there? So ultimately I went to UCLA and I was uh, majored in English lit and I did a um, they didn't have official minors, but an unofficial minor in business econ. And one thing that I noticed how important it is, um, to be able to be a good writer oh, in yeah. anything you do. Yeah. So this is something that I love to stress to people that no matter what your job is, it's important to be able mm-hmm. to write a good email, make a good presentation. And those kind of skills come in so powerfully. Can you yeah. talk about that a little? Yeah. You can be the smartest person in the room and you still might not be the most successful person at that company. I couldn't agree more. Making, knowing how to make presentations, knowing how to socialize with colleagues, you know, all of those soft factors, right. Writing a good email, even if you're an engineer and you never have to actually write anything in your actual projects, writing, being able to write an email instead of having it look like text which is sort of a problem I see a lot these days, makes a huge, makes a huge difference. Yeah. I had this sense that even if I was going to go on and get an MBA, I was going to have to have honed my writing skills even more. So I decided to take a couple of years off because then it was starting to click to me that maybe I don't want to get the MBA that I thought I wanted to get. Maybe I do want to go to law school, but I'm not sure. And someone suggested I take a couple of years off and because see if I could get a research clerk or law clerk position at a, at a law firm. Um, so was that to kind of test the waters to, to see if it was what, if something you wanted to do? Yeah, see what law firm life is like. Are, are lawyers happy? Are they not happy? Or what kind of practice are you into? You know, just to kind of see, you know, how it, what, what's the process, you know, how does it, how does it look to come to work every day and be a lawyer? Right. Just make sure it felt like a good fit. Yeah, exactly. And I thought also, because just to be very honest, there's like a real Machiavellian part of my brain always. So it's not always sort of like, I really wanted to see if I wanted to be a lawyer. Also, strategically in the back of my brain, I was thinking, hey, and it's not going to hurt if I do a great job, then I'll have the recommendations and great letters from a bunch of high-level lawyers, and that'll help me get into the law school that I want to get into. And That is so telling. You <laughs> are somebody that's always kind of two steps ahead yeah. of where you are in the moment. So yeah, and that- it panned out like that, you know, and then they, some of those people were with me for years as mentors when I was coming up as a young lawyer or, again, writing me letters of rec depending on what I was going to do or support letters if I was up for an award. So it really did help the seeds that I sort of sowed there. But I got this really cool job. Um, I was up for a couple of, di- I got offers at a couple of different firms, but this job um, appealed to be the most, actually no pun intended, it was the leading appellate law firm on the West Coast. And there was a blind lawyer who had become blind later in life due to sort of complications with diabetes. And she, voice recognition technology wasn't perfect at that point, and and there wasn't enough legal research material in Braille yet. So she took law clerks for two years at a time um, to do her research, help her when she was in court, you know, because it's all court of appeals, which is really high level, not trial court level. And she needed, um, and she needed, she always needed a law clerk to work with her. So very rewarding job. I got so much more substantive experience than I would have if I just would have been a law, just a regular law clerk at another law firm. So when I was graduating from law school, I had an offer to go back to Jones Day. I had been a summer associate there during my second summer. It's a very traditional way of going through law school. But some of us, um, before we go back to that law firm where we had the permanent offer, for the year after you graduate from law school, you do a federal judicial clerkship especially if you think you're going to be a litigator, which at the time I did think I was going to go into litigation. So everything I had done up to that point was geared towards being a litigator, a trial lawyer. So my year-long federal judicial clerkship happened to be for a bankruptcy judge 
bankruptcy is unlike any other practice out there because it's really, even though it's in a courtroom, it's really just deals that are being overseen and ultimately have to be approved or rejected by a judge. So there's a courtroom and there's a judge and there are pleadings, but it's mostly a transactional practice. And it's very, um, it's very financial heavy, I guess, is the best way to say it, because the companies that are there are in Chapter 11, because the Chapter 7s are just sort of simple stuff that the clerks take care of. But I found myself actually in deal practice, became a deal lawyer, not the litigator I thought I was going to be. But then it's 99 to 2000, and everybody's a corp fin, corporate finance lawyer. There's all these sort of startups, you know, it's sort of the end of the height of the tech boom. You're helping companies raise money, go through the financing rounds, and ultimately maybe go public or maybe sell. The mini recession happened after 9-11 in 2001, and the bottom fell out of the deal market. Startups, no more, you know, and no more financing for these companies either. And, and powder dried up and lots of places closed and lots of people, you know, lost everything, you know, yeah, that had been invested in these companies, you know. So there were there wasn't any more work for Corp Fin lawyers to do, but I had this skill that my colleagues in the Corp Fin group didn't have. I knew distressed, which is exactly what we were in. So I pitched myself to the bankruptcy lawyers at the firm and said, I don't want to be a bankruptcy lawyer, but I know how to do distressed mergers and acquisitions. No, I put that in, in air quotes, right? Because I had done a one-year clerkship for a judge, but what the hell did I know? I was just being cocky and they bought it, you know? And so, don't underestimate that. You like, know, and way. so I just knocked on a bunch of doors and, and, you know, finally the bankruptcy lawyers took me in. And so for the next three years or so, you know, I kept up with my experience, unlike my colleagues, because I just did a bunch of distressed M&A. So I just continued to do deals and a deal is a deal is a deal, right? And that experience is going to come in really handy for you later uh, on, later on, which we'll talk about in a minute. But in terms of, so the recession ends and we come out of it, now I'm actually just a full-fledged M&A lawyer back to healthy M&A, which I'm now more than prepared to do. And unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues have been sitting there twiddling their thumbs because they hadn't gotten that same experience. So that's actually what helped me ultimately make partner, you know, and I mean, not just on track, but basically early because I had taken maternity leaves in the middle and all that. But it was it was that strategic decision. Let's talk about the idea of making partner at a law firm for people that don't understand the world of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jones Day is obviously a very respected firm. It's a big deal to become partner there. How the hell did you do that? I mean, first of all, it's, I don't even know if it's possible anymore, honestly. And I'm not talking about that firm. I'm talking about generally big firms, you know, I mean, big firm law and practice has changed dramatically in the generations that came up after me. Um, because there's also something now called non-equity partnership, which is really just you're still an employee of the firm and they just give you the label partner. Right. They're just like relabeling it for you to make yeah, you feel like you have you a know. piece of it. So it's not, it's not like you're the owner in the business, which is really what, you know, puts so your the, heart into so it. So the landscape's changed a little bit, you Landscape's think? changed. I mean, for me, for making partner what it used to be and when I was there, you know, although it was extremely difficult, I mean, out of... Just to give you an example, there were 26 of us in my starting class just in the Los Angeles office. In the end, 10 years later, two of us made partner. And how many men versus women were there in this? Well, there's always, firm. and this is generally for law firms, you know, I mean, generally, I think starting out as a, in the associate ranks, I think there's something like 51% of those people are women. Okay. And then the ranks... They the numbers look dramatically different when you look to partnership ranks at any firm. So we're just talking big law across the board. And it's getting better for sure because firms are focusing on it. But for a while, it's, you know, you're not going to find 51% of partners at big law firms. Do you know what the female. percentage was when you became partner? Very low. I mean, and particularly in the mergers and acquisitions practice. I mean, in deal practice, there were hardly any women at all, which is actually how I got it. I got into deal practice. My mentor, who convinced me to start doing deals to begin with, Bert Zweig, said a lot of things to me at the beginning. But one of the things he said was, he said, there are no women that do this, but there's a lot of female litigators. So if you do this, you're going to fill, you're going to be an indispensable piece of the practice here. 
love that. And, you know, and being indispensable is one of the stepping stones to making partner because in their mind, you know, if you're, if they don't make you a partner and you leave and they can't continue the practice as it was happening before with you there, then they have to make you a partner. Yeah. It's very, very logical. So how many partners were there at any one time? So at Jones Day, there were 700 partners worldwide, you know, and the firm had, I don't know, 30 some odd offices globally. And you loved that company. Several thousand, you know, actual lawyers. Yeah, I I absolutely loved it. But it's, I mean, those 10 years making partner were the hardest years up until that point because I hadn't yet gotten to American Apparel and experienced everything I experienced there. But I mean, it's about, you get one promotion as a lawyer from associate to partner. So that's like, you know, becoming an astronaut and getting into space. I mean, what are the odds of that actually happening? Right. So, I mean, so you're focusing on this one promotion for your entire job, you know, no pressure. Right. And it's about getting through 10 years or however many years of performance evaluations. It's about getting to know the right people politically, getting to have the decision makers who might not even sit in your office, might not even live in your state, get to know you well enough that they can recommend you to make partner. You know, I mean, it's just this incredibly tough slog. And, uh, but this just meant something to me as a person who had been focused on my career almost from day one of my life. You know, somebody I had always said, I want to be successful in my career. I want to and do something I love. How happened? I was, um, let's see, it was 2007. So I guess I was 35, which is young, Beautiful. you know? Um, and, that was everything. And then I threw my whole self and more into being a, into being a good partner and living up to the kind of partner that Steve thought that I could be when he offered me that partnership, because it, it was, there are, there are so many, there are limited spaces. It's like getting into oh, private school in Los Angeles deal. or something, you know? So I, he didn't, he can't waste a space. And I very much wanted to live up to what he envisioned for me, the place he thought I was going to take in his business. Chelsea, tell us some of the snags that you came across in, you know, kind of building your career and your path. So I guess I've got two anecdotes, well, two stories that come to mind, one of which is an actual snag and the other one is just sort of... um, a personal story that ended up not being a snag, but it was something I perceived to be a snag at the time. So I'll tell that one first. I had, let's see, I already had my first kid. I was pregnant. So I have a 16 year old daughter and I have a 14 year old son. Uh, My daughter was two and I was in the last legs of my pregnancy with my son. So I was not yet a partner but I was a mid-level associate. I was already pressing them about partnership track. All, you know, already, you know, everybody knew that was my goal. I was a gunner. And I had come back right away after having my daughter. So everybody knew that I wasn't. Were you one of those women that came back two weeks after you had a baby? I mean, I took an actual maternity leave and the firm is really amazing about maternity leaves. Actually, it's one of the things that, you know, really cemented them in my heart because they are so gracious about maternity leave there. So a couple years later, my kids are 23 months apart. I'm pregnant with my son. It's all fine. The day before I started on my maternity leave, They brought through um, a female associate, um, clearly about my age. She did end up being exactly my age within four days, literally within four days. But she wasn't pregnant. Um, She wasn't pregnant. She was coming in from another firm. She did basically exactly what I did. And I was supposed to interview her for an associate position in my group in the office. Oh my gosh. So of course, in my mind, and I did it because I was a really good soldier and I, you know, always wanted to toe the line. So I interviewed her dutifully. I thought she was fantastic. I couldn't lie about that on the form, you know, so I evaluated her that way. You know, then I had to go on maternity leave. And of course I heard that, you know, she had been made an offer and that she was coming to the firm. So now I'm off for four months with two kids. So it's scary because you think she's going to take your job. Yeah. Cause I'm sort of assuming, well, I can't believe that the firm would do that, but I'm sort of assuming they think I'm not coming back because now I've had two kids. And so they're, they've put my replacement in. And even if I come back, I'll just be there to sort of transition the practice to her and then I'm out. Right. And I didn't so much stress about that during the whole maternity leave, but it was always in the back of my mind and it made me come back 
and go even, even harder. Yeah. And of course it turned out that she had a different practice than mine and they were actually expanding the group and she was parallel to me, not the same. And this is before you made partner. And this obviously. is before I made partner. And what's more, and I'll tell you, her name is Esme. She and I ended up being extremely close and to this day, we're close friends. So we were never in competition with each other. She hadn't been hired to replace me. Of course, the firm wouldn't do that. But it was something that I had to grapple with and figure out, well, how do I react in that situation? And how I ended up seeing how I react is that I fight for it. You know, I came back hard and really proactive. And I just decided, even if she had been hired to replace me, it wasn't actually going to happen. I think that actually it's telling, it's a little bit telling about me and my personality. I always... I internalize that stuff. I think people are coming for me always, which has always been my motivation. Extremely competitive and paranoid. That's always. People are always coming for me. People are coming for my gig. People are coming for this. People are coming for that, but they're always coming for me. You have to protect it. So yeah. So in my mind, I think, okay, they're coming for the job, which they weren't. And then, but it also told me something about, again, like I say, how I respond to that stuff. Are you fight or flight? I was fight. You know, and so another situation where I learned something about myself in terms of am I fight or flight um, was when I was in high school. Um, I used to go for a long run every day after school. I've always been a runner. And running is, you know, in addition to exercise is also kind of when I think everything through and, you know, it's... Why is it always the busiest people that are always exercising every single day at 6 a.m. where I see you at the gym? Oh, I'm up at 4.30. Oh, you just see me at the gym two hours later than you. Yeah. Oh, I get up at 4.30. I'm at the gym at five most days. And I mean, yeah, I I don't know. I, um, it's a release for me, you know? I I hear you, girl. You know, and I don't know. I need to... I need the endorphins, I, th- I guess, you know. Um, but so I was I was running after school one day, and, you know, this shows this will date me because it was, you know, 1988 or something like that. So I had the Sony Walkman, you know, the shock, G-Shock or whatever, you know. with the, And so I'm running, and it just, by the grace of who knows what, it happened to be in between songs on the tape that I was listening to, and I was running up a hill that had gravel instead of an actual sidewalk, so the combination of those two helped me hear the guy running up behind me in the gravel. Because if the music had been on and regular sidewalk, I would have never known there was somebody that was running to attack me. Very. So as I heard it, I turned around and he already had his pants down and he pushed me into the bushes. There was all, there was all this ivy on the side of the road, you know, again, no sidewalk. It was just sort of a rural part of my neighborhood and pushed me into the bushes and he was going to rape me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's no question about what he was going to do. And in that moment, I had never been tested like that physically. And, but in that moment I fought that guy. I mean, I, how somehow I got him wrestled back up and then he was hobbled because his pants were around his legs, his ankles. So it was hard for him to maneuver. And, um, I need him in the place you're supposed to knee guys that are trying to rape you. And while he was down, I grabbed his hair and kneed him in the nose and broke his nose. And then he was down, you know, because now he's got it in both places and there's blood spewing all over the place. And all I remember thinking, and then he rolled into the IV and I remember thinking, this You just jerk. ran? You just ran away? Well, I was standing there looking at my Walkman that was shattered all over the street and I'd spent thirty four ninety nine on that, which was my entire allowance, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And we didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. And I just remember being so pissed that my Walkman was broken and how am I going to replace this thing? Um, and then as I'm standing there trying to figure everything out and everything I'm wearing is ripped and there's his blood is all over me. And this football player from my school drove up randomly and looked and assessed the situation and just said, you get in the car, get in my car. I'm taking you home. And he took me home. By the time I got back to the scene with the police and my parents, of course, the guy was gone. So we never caught him or anything like that. But it weirdly, not that I'm happy that happened to me, but I mean, it taught me a lot about myself. And, you know, that was a terrible thing that happened to me. And I think about it all the time. I mean, especially all the hard times I ultimately went through at American Apparel And I don't just mean the tough stuff. I mean the people that came at us, all the scary litigation that was filed against us, the unionization attempts, which are really scary. You know, we had, I had to have full security detail for the better part of a year because of some threats we were getting. Wow. But that, but taking bold moves in the face of all that stuff, I, 
I was never scared because I already knew that I can fight my way through any tough situation. That taught me moving forward that, you know, what I do in response to someone attacking me, even if it's not physically, is I fight and I don't get scared. You know, I constantly am hearing as I'm doing these interviews, um, so many women bring back experiences from their childhood that somehow play such a major role in their career or their path or their journey. And it's really interesting how those experiences take such a big part in your life. Yeah. You can use it as a benchmark, you know, well, this isn't as scary as the time that X, Y, and Z. So the other snag, which is, was actually a snag, um, but ended up probably being the best stepping stone to the best part of my career so far is, um, I, at some point decided to lateral to a different firm, um, because I thought that I needed a more local practice. I was looking to do some music and entertainment. And Was it a hard decision to leave a very firm hard, that you love so much? Very emotional. Um, but there was a true distinction from the place I was leaving to the place I was going. So it was very logical. Anybody looking at it would know that I couldn't do what I was wanting to do at the place I was at. And... So I, you know, I checked all the boxes in terms of my diligence at this new place. You know, do they have the right resources? Do they have the right practice groups? Will I have the right support? You know, I mean, do they have the right name and reputation in the circles that I'm looking to pitch business? And or are their offices in the right place? All of those logical things. And the thing I forgot to check was culture. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so I got there and it was absolutely the wrong culture for me, you know, and was I dying on the vine? No. Was I feeling like I could die on the vine there? Yeah. I was starting to question, do I even like being a lawyer anymore? Which is earth shattering to somebody who has had always loved my career as a lawyer, notwithstanding all the bad lawyer jokes people make. You know, I never got those because I loved my job. But this was making me question, do I want to be a lawyer? And am I a good lawyer anymore? I mean, it really just got into of my the, head. The, it was, so it was the culture, the people around you, yeah, the, just the, the way they did business. Me. Yeah, the, the toxic culture of just... You know, not having um, colleagues around you that you felt truly supported you. I mean, I went so far. I mean, again, this is sort of where you have to zig and zag in your career. So I told you what kind of lawyer I'd been the whole way through because of the way the culture was with the people physically sitting around me. I ended up reaching across the aisle at this new place to a partner in the New York office in the energy group, which I'd never ventured into before and talked to him about some renewable energy deals that I saw that he was doing in Asia and ended up working, partnering myself with him. He took me in, taught me the ropes in renewable energy M&A transactions. I mean, so this is late in my career as a lawyer. And we ended up spending a lot of time in Asia, India, mainland China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, which I deliberately had gotten to so it could get me out of physically out of my office. I realized I needed to not be at that firm anymore, notwithstanding that I've been able to remove myself and sort of do a quick fix in the moment. But I also realized I couldn't be in India all the time because I'm a single mom with two kids back in Los Angeles. So um, I started talking to Jones Day about returning and sort of taking my old gig, if not my you know, old office. Did that feel like you were um, taking a step backwards just because you were going back to your comfort zone? It, it didn't because I realized all that had happened was, is that I'd made a mistake and now I was sort of writing the path, you know, sort of writing the ship. And so I was more than happy to think about going back to the firm. And I had all sorts of ideas about how I could rejigger my career there to make it what I had tried to make it at this other place I had lateral to, because by then I had some additional ideas about how I could make it back there. And so I was sort of in that interim phase of, I was going back to my firm, but I was finishing out things at the new, at the new place when I got the call from, um, Colleen Brown, who then was chairing the, uh, nominating and corporate governance committee at American Apparel um, wanting to talk to me about coming on board as the new general counsel. But when she called, of course, I mean, American Apparel had been in all of, had been in, in the press regularly and particularly local press. You know, here I am sitting in Los Angeles and American Apparel is one of those rare public companies that's headquartered in Los Angeles. 
And so there's a lot, you know, whenever anything would happen at the company, there'd be a lot of local press coverage. So wait, I want to stop you for a second, because I, I, this is a question I have, and I think a lot of people are going to have. Um, you got this phone call, you were recruited, you were already kind of in a bad headspace at the job you were at. So you were thinking of leaving. This was interesting to you, but here was a company that had gone through a lot of turmoil. Right, right. This is my reputation. So I'd seen all this bad press. How, how, what made you decide that this was a good idea? Right. And so I would have never taken this phone call had I not been in this weird interim space of, okay, well, I'm not happy where I am and I'm going to go back to the old place, which isn't going to be perfect, but I'm going to make it work. But meanwhile, there had been all this horrible press about the company, and she herself on the phone said, you know, we were in a liquidity crisis. We've lost over $300 million in the last five years. You know, we have, we are in the middle of investigating the CEO for all sorts of, you know, sexual harassment, to say the least, and other misconduct, you know, that may or may not lead to his termination, which is going to be incredibly tumultuous for the company. And you were like, yes, I want it. You know, we're in the middle. We have a culture crisis. There's $500 million worth of litigation that's ongoing. There's an SEC investigation. You know, people are probably going to unionize and that's going to be a battle, you know. And, you know, so I said, lady, no, just no way. There's absolutely no way this is going to happen for me. And she said, well, look, you dig deep and you figure out whether or not this brand means something to you and whether or not you think it deserves to live and then come back to me and let me know. And so, again, as a native Angelino and knowing that this is a company, putting aside it has 10,000 employees globally, 7,500 of those were here in, you know, were domestic and 6,500 were here in Los Angeles. 5,500 of those were manufacturing workers, sewers, dyers, cutters, what have you, who were all immigrants, some of whom were immigrants, and then they'd had their kids on the sewing floor, and those kids had kids, and then they all worked at American Apparel throughout the years. You know, they'd been raised at the company. Six manufacturing facilities in Los Angeles, which is super rare. We were the second biggest employer after the um, LAPD, was my understanding. And so that's a lot of people whose jobs you'd want to save as a native Angelino. So you you felt a, a huge sense of responsibility to take this job. That's kind of what drove you to yeah. take it. I felt responsibility. I felt a sense of responsibility. I felt like it was the right thing to do to try to put some order to the chaos of this really toxic culture. You know, I felt like the company, the brand also had always stood for things that I believed in, you know, I mean, notwithstanding all of the incredibly racy ads at base, the company was about female empowerment, you know, quote, real models were never really used. You know, there were people that were plucked off the street. There was no airbrushing. There was no Photoshopping. It was about real bodies, cellulite, gray hair, wrinkles, the whole thing. How do you look in our clothes in your everyday life? Which really appealed to me. It was about immigration reform in the most liberal sense of that word, you know, I mean, welcoming people here, you know, which I firmly believe in. Um, you know, it was about LGBTQA issues and being proactively in favor of LGBTQA support and um, philanthropy. So it was about all these things that I really believe in. And so she was right from a brand and company perspective. Yeah. And as a native Angelino, I you felt an some sort of responsibility to come in and see if I could. And I knew that I could affect good change. I just, and that's the egotistical part of me, I guess. I just knew I had it in me and I knew none of the stuff was going to scare me. So, so this was like a huge challenge for you. Yeah, it was about really wanting to accomplish. Yeah, it was about raising the stock price. And we firmly believed the turnaround could affect all that. And then we were in it for the long haul. And I mean, I never go into anything thinking it's going to be short term. I'm in it forever. You know, I'm a lifer no matter I what that. I do, because otherwise I can't do it, you know? And so backing up, I just want to kind of connect the dots here. So this thing that happened to you where you were really miserable in your job, put you in a headspace yeah. where you were kind of open to a new opportunity. So the snag somehow, again, turned into this amazing kind of shift in direction for yeah, you. Yeah, it was the best snag that ever happened. You know, if you're going to have a snag, that's a pretty that's good right one. That's the right kind of snag. Yeah, that's the right snag. You know? I think so, it's, a, it's important that people hear that, that sometimes those yeah. things that trip you up somehow are what pave, you know, they pave the path for where you need to go because you realize that something has to change and you start going in a different direction. I never even thought about going in-house. I probably even saw at some point in my emails that gen that American Apparel was looking for a general counsel, and it probably never even entered my mind that, that that was a possibility for me or something I'd be interested in because I always, coming up, I was very traditional big law, and it was, we go in-house, and A, it's a pay cut. That's true. you know. And B, you've sidelined yourself somehow from where the action is. 
I didn't realize that the action really is in company, you know, where you're surrounded by business operators, you know, and that you're, you know, you've got this one client that you're dedicated to. And that's, you know, really kind of, um, in some ways, one version of being the best lawyer you can be, you know? Um, but so I guess the lesson is, is about, you know, sure, take lemons and make lemonade, but it's also about being open to opportunities that come to you, taking that phone call, you know, allowing people to invite you to do something that you never would have considered before. And, you know, in your, when you're the most down being open to those possibilities and opportunities, and that just might be the best way to get yourself out of it. I think that's the, that's some really good advice. It's, you know, when you hit those snags, those are the times where you have to really kind of reflect and think about, is this time to make a change? Is this time to do something different and go in a different, um, you know, down a different path? Yeah. Because all of us, I mean, and probably anybody listening to this is the same kind of person that you and I are, right? We're achievers. We're type A. We just go, 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 go. And so we've been taught, you just keep banging your head against that wall and eventually you're going to break through it, you know, but sometimes it's not, it's about not banging your head against that wall, not doing the same thing, right? Turning around and walking the opposite direction towards seeing something, what happens. Yeah. something else and seeing what happens. And you can't always do that. I mean, when you're young, it's not always the right thing. Although I think things are a little bit different now with millennials and post-millennials, they can zig and zag in a way you and I didn't have the luxury of being able to do. We had right. to take a much more traditional route. Yeah. It was much more linear back then. <clears throat> much more linear and it had to be. But certainly, you know, when you hit your forties, I think you have a lot more, you can establish more range for yourself. You can take those risks. I think this is something that a lot of people listening will want to hear about, um, how important it is to kind of get out of your comfort zone and push forward. So talk a little bit about that. If you're not stretching every day, if you're not a little bit anxious, um, or on edge every day, you're, you are not advancing in your career. Frankly, you're not advancing in any area of your life if you're not doing that in, in every area of your life, you know, working on something, testing, stretching, testing the limits, you know, if you get too complacent, you're, de- you're stagnant, right? Absolutely. Let's talk about one of the most exciting parts of your career. You made this incredible power move, I like to call it. <laughs> um, I love the power move. I love to hear the stories of yeah. women who take these you know, huge plunges into doing something that is so dramatically different. Um, so talk a little bit about how you made the transition from being general counsel to the CEO of such an incredibly iconic brand. Yeah. Um, I mean, right when I got in, it was obvious that, um, we all had such huge jobs at that company and in particular, the new CEO that they brought in, I mean, she needed to be purely focused on designing marketing and selling clothes. Right. I mean, at that point it was purely about turning the company around from a financial perspective, generating more revenue and in turn generating positive EBITDA. And that was what the board wanted her to focus on. So I raised my hand and said, well, let me take all this peripheral stuff that normally the CEO would, you know, be in charge of, or those would be her direct reports. And why don't you move them over to me? And ultimately the board agreed and moved a bunch of business business functions over to me so that the CEO wouldn't have to be distracted by all of that. And they gave me the additional title, chief administrative officer. So there's my first business title ever, you know? And so that was, you know, health and safety, uh, environmental health and safety, which is huge at a manufacturing entity because at base American apparel is a manufacturing entity. So it's about coming and leaving with the same, you know, 10 fingers and 10 toes. Right. Did you know where this was leading? Um, I, I, I didn't think it was leading to any, I didn't, I didn't necessarily think it would lead to anything more at American apparel, but I thought for sure I could parlay it at my next gig. If there was going to be a next gig, just having a business title was so valuable. Um, and then they gave me HR and they also gave me risk management. So, you know, when, and, and so now I've sort of been able to delegate some of the legal stuff down to my assistant general counsel. And now I can spend a large part of my day dealing with business people as such. So I'm not dealing with them as a lawyer anymore. They're not coming to me for legal advice. We're dealing with each other as business colleagues on the operating side, So I started to morph myself a little bit. And by the time we negotiated the debt for equity swap with Goldman Sachs and the other hedge funds that took us private, 
those entities that ultimately became our owners when we went private came to know me as on the business side, but I was also the general counsel. So that was key. And so ultimately when we parted ways with the CEO, they could legitimately look at me along with a pool of other candidates because they did a retained search and that's fine. They should have done that. Um, they could legitimately see me as a business person. They could legitimately envision me as a CEO because they'd seen me fill other business roles at a really high level the whole way. Mm -hmm. So it was natural for them to ask me to throw my hat in the ring. So there was a certain time though, in this process that you realized that they were starting to kind of look at you for the role. And was that exciting to you? Scary? It wasn't scary. I knew that was my place. I just felt natural about it. You know, I felt like I knew the answers to their questions. I knew that company backwards and forwards. I knew those people like they were my family. Because you you were born to be the boss. Yeah, I was born. (laughs) Yeah, I knew I was going to like it. (laughs) You know, I knew I could. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Is there anything that scares you in business? Um... I mean, it's not, it's not fear. I mean, do I get anxious about things? Are there pressure? Are there situations where I feel pressure, where I want to do the right thing and I want it to come out right for everybody involved? I mean, yes. Do I get, I mean, I guess I get stressed in a different way than I did when I was younger. I manage it better now. I kind of turn it into better energy. Um, but no, it's not, I don't get scared because I know I've got the skills and seasoning to get through any such, I've been in the worst of situations. I mean, my God, we could talk for hours about all of the dicey situations we got ourselves into at American Apparel. I mean, and all the while, you know, you're trying to fix the culture of the company and you're dealing with people who are still picketing every day out outside the building because they felt like they were wronged by being ousted from the company and, you know, I mean, Did you have to walk through a picket line? Yeah, to go we to had work? security detail for a really long time. I mean, it was so physically there were, you know, it was it was a high pressure situation, you know. But but I we I somehow had this had built up the skills and seasoning to deal with all of that and the callus. I somehow had built up a callus to deal with all of that without being freaked out and also most importantly. And you'll know this as a business owner and as a person who runs your company, as a person who runs your own company. I mean, most importantly, to project confidence to everybody else in the company. Yeah, like you're the decision maker and you're not scared to make a decision. And you, even if, I mean, you, and you're, and you are decisive. And you'll collaborate and you'll take other people's gut, you know, advice and you'll hear what they have to say. But in the end, you make the decision and people want to see that. They feel comforted by that. Most people Confidence want a leader. Confidence is so important. I so relate to what you're saying. You know, 20, yeah. 20 years ago when I used to start pitching, um, you know, business for new accounts, I was scared out of my mind. Um, and I would go in there and I would kind of talk myself out of having panic attacks and, you know, really freak out. And I just realized that um, all I needed to do was figure out how to walk in that room and pretend like I was confident. Yeah. And people believed it. Yeah. They believed it. And so the more they believed it, I believed it. Mm-hmm. And now there's nothing I'm more com- you know confident or comfortable doing than pitching. Walking in and doing a pitch. Yeah. That's now your favorite thing, right? It's so- my favorite. The thing that scared me the most is now my, my most favorite thing because I yeah. figured out that all I had to do was make people in the room feel like I was confident. Yep. When the water rises, all boats float. Absolutely. Okay, so you were then, did you get another phone call um, at home <laughs> one night that you were considered to, you know, or being made the CEO? Yeah, it would happen just like that. I was in Washington, D.C. I was doing a speaking engagement because my other passion in life is I go off and do speaking engagements. That's my favorite thing to do. They had asked me to submit my turnaround plan, as it were, you know, what are the initiatives I'd want to implement and sort of how would I do that? And they had sort of talked about that and considered it. And they told me they were honing in on who they were going to make an offer to. And they told me sort of who it was between. And so I was in a really nice group of people. And then the next day they called and said there had been a board meeting and they were extending me the offer to take the job. And it all happened. I wasn't even in 
on my phone in my room. I was on a cell phone. Did you scream? In a weird Did internal balcony in the hotel where I was doing my speaking engagement, you know, um, and my daughter's standing there and I'm going, hold on, just like one second. And she's used to this, right? Because for all of her years on this earth, it's always, she's in the back seat, and I'm like, hold on, this is a work call. Everybody shut up. So she's used to me shushing her while I'm on the work call. And um, I mean... Yeah, I was, I was excited, but I was also, it wasn't even, there was no time to be excited. It was about, I needed to get back on a plane right away. I canceled. I had another speaking engagement in DC because I'd done them back to back and I had to cancel the second one, which is I'd never done before. And I felt terrible about it. They needed you to come back and lead the company. Bailing on that. Yeah. I needed to come back and lead the company. And so it was, it was just about now I'm on mission. Now I'm on task and I need to get back and do that. And the most important thing and the most pressing thing I wanted to do was physically come back. And I did this and walk all six of our facilities, walk every inch of all six of our facilities and shake everybody's hand and do a talk at every single one of those facilities to let them know, remind them who I was. They'd seen me, of course, you know, cause I made it a practice to go to the facilities, but remind them who I was sort of tell them about what I, you know, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to accomplish for them. And, um, I wanted to physically, you know, kind of be there for them to see and ask questions. So then, you know, I spent the next year implementing the initiatives that I got the budget to implement, you know, and rallying my management team around me. And, you know, I was, um, you know, talk to the owners and, you know, hedge funds, it's no secret. They're not private equity, so they don't operate hedge funds invest in things. And if they happen to come to own those things, they sell them relatively quickly because they're not operators. So now I'm on a familiar path, right? Because it's back to my roots as an M&A lawyer. So on the one hand, um, I'm doing the things that have always been in my DNA, preparing preparing the CIM, the Confidential Information Memorandum, um, organizing management presentations. On the other hand, I'm doing really traditional CEO things. So I'm, impl- I'm fully implementing the initiatives that I had the budget to implement. There's also initiatives I didn't f- have the budget to fully implement, but I considered those things to be sort of breadcrumbs. So they were sort of, here, I'm going to partially implement this potential buyer. Look over here. See that this is low-hanging fruit for you. If you come in and invest just a little bit more capital than what we were able to invest, you could put all these in action and here's how it's going to translate for you into additional revenue and ultimately um, really amazing EBITDA. So those are breadcrumbs. So, and there's a lot of temperance that goes into that activity, you know, sort of figuring out how to do that just so it looks like low enough hanging fruit that they'll be tempted to come in and buy the company. And then again, meanwhile, we're doing management presentations. So that was, so that was a good part of the year. And was really exciting because we got so many interesting suitors coming in and we ran a really formal process. It really was back to my roots. We had an investment banker, we had all the lawyers rallying around us, you know, and I loved all the eyeballs on me every time we'd go into management presentations because I really did feel like I knew the company backwards and forwards. And and you were back in your element. And I was back in my element, but also now as a business person. So now I can talk about the operations of the company and you know, I can convince them why it's a good buy, which it really was. Let's talk a little bit about work-life balance. <laughs> you are a single mom. You have two kids. <laughs> I know for someone like you who's similar to me, work is something that excites you and you love. Do you feel like you have work-life balance? So up until a year ago when I sold the company and then transitioned myself out, um, Ish, you know, I mean, I think that that phrase, you know, you, you know, you can't have it all or you can have it all depending on where you're coming from. I think you can have some of each part of what makes it all some of everything, but you can't truly have all of everything, you know, so you're going to have to accept that you're not going to be perfect at every single part of your life. And that was actually fine for me. You know, I have my parents are my silver bullet when it comes to helping me out at home. I've never had to have a nanny. They've always been there. They drop everything for me. So they've always, you know, because I'm a single mother and they've always really helped me out with at, at home and with the kids. So I was able to be, <laughs> it sounds terrible, less than perfect at parenting because I had them to fill in the gaps as my village. So then I could put every single thing into my career 
which even way before I even thought about the kids, before they were even in my brain, had been the thing that was closest to my heart. I missed out on a lot of things that people in their 20s experience that I'm now kind of seeing and realizing that there was a whole life of bars and clubs and parties and lollygagging around on the weekends that I never got to, which is fine, but I want my kids to experience all of that um, because I think they'll probably get to the same place in the end. Um, Now, you ask about life-work balance, so I'll give you the second part to the answer. Come back full circle. So I sold the company in February. I stuck around until April at their request to help them transition the business and the right people and all of that over. And since then, um, my my main gig is that I'm a corporate director. I sit on corporate boards. So I sit on the True Religion board and I chair the audit committee and I sit on the Delta Dental board as well. And then I have two advisory board seats as well. So I'm, um, Marka Global is online reputational management, second biggest in the country. And the other one is a private equity fund. But those are not full-time gigs. And even when you throw in my speaking engagements and some consulting that I do, it's not the way it was, you know, for the last, whatever, you know, 25 years or whatever. I actually have work-life balance now. That's what it kind of takes, right? When you're sort of going at it part-time, you know, I do take my kids to school every day. Love that. Which is, has been such a revelatory experience for me. But they're me. probably at the age where they don't say a word when they're in the car with Well, what's you. weird, they don't say, sometimes they don't say a word, but other times it's like the therapist couch because there's this weird thing. You're in the car, you're, everybody's looking forward. It's like sitting on the couch, right? Nobody's looking at each other. I always have NPR in the background and I'm listening to some news story or whatever. And so sometimes we'll talk about the news story or, you know, they'll, they'll bring something up about school and I'll get into a conversation with them and it feels less... You know, it feels, I think for them, it feels like I'm not shining the spotlight on them in an awkward way because we're all kind of, you know, looking forward and the radio's on in the background. It feels less formal. Um, So it's been really rewarding. Even just those 20 minutes in the car with them has been the most precious time I've spent with them since they were born. Amazing. A little bit of time makes a lot of difference. A little bit of time. And I've realized also it's much harder to be a parent to teenagers than it is to be a parent to young kids. Babies, you're tired all the time. Toddlers, it's so important to the learning and the development and blah, blah, blah. And then as they're coming up, the right schools and all this stuff. There's nothing harder than being the parent to a teenager. And thank God I've had this year during the hardest part of their teenage years to focus on them. It's almost like it was fate. You know, I didn't spend any of that early time with them, but this was a crucial year for both of them. So maybe everything happened in the end the way it was supposed to. Chelsea, thank you so much for being a part of this. And I have so enjoyed learning about your journey and your four S's and your crazy world. You know, it's really exciting to me to um, have women on this podcast that have taken a completely different journey than me. You know, for me, it was right out of college, starting a company. And for you, you went more the corporate route of kind of, you know, moving your way up. So I can't tell you how much I learned from you just hearing about how you've gone through this and how you've, you know, accomplished so much. No, thank you so much for having me. Again, it's a privilege and I'm one of your early guests. So you are, maybe I'll, I'll come back for the reunion in a year. You know, success is never, as you know, a destination. And I know that in a few years from now, you're going to have so many more stories and so many more things that you've accomplished. Because every time I see you, it's a whole new, um, you know, story. So I'd like to invite Emily back. Um, She's been listening. She's been sitting here and listening to the whole podcast to ask you a question um, to kind of wrap up. All right, Emily, hit me with your best shot. I said earlier that I don't scare not for nothing, right? Uh, hopefully it's not too scary of a question. So for me being, you know, mid to late 20s um, in the advertising industry, which is not a huge population of, of females, um, what is one piece of advice that you would give any young young female, maybe entering college, figuring out what they want to do, just one piece of advice that you would yeah. give. So we've sort of already, you've indirectly heard other pieces of advice, right? Where you need to always stretch and be a little bit scared or on edge every mm-hmm. day. Otherwise, you're not growing. You're not moving forward. Um, we've talked about requiring 
decision makers in your career to own your journey, you know, so you're always telling them where you want to go. And so you're, you're making them vaguely responsible at the very least, you know, for achieving to, for getting to that goal. Right. So pushing all of that aside, um, I think two things, I think one, um, it sounds traditional, but in sort of a non-traditional way, pick mentors, actively pick mentors, not, and I say this a lot when I'm on the speaking circuit, don't pick mentors that are like you. Don't always go for the woman who's sort of like who you want to be ultimately when you grow up, you know, go for somebody that's completely the opposite of you um, because they know all the doors that you don't know about. I think the other thing is, um, and I think this is a generational thing. I don't think Valerie and I experienced this because it was such an organic part of our linear path. We, we were trained properly um, from soup to nut so that ultimately when we came to leadership positions, we were, we were already seasoned and had all of the experiences under our belt and had all of the basic skills under our belt because we came up in such a traditional way. I think millennials and post-millennials are coming up in really non-traditional ways where sometimes the basic training gets skipped or overlooked. You don't always get trained um, in the basic sort of building blocks of whatever your profession is. Make sure whoever your employer is, invest that time and money into you so you get the basics of that, of whatever industry you're in. Because it doesn't matter how creative you are. It doesn't matter how bold you are. It doesn't matter what sort of risks you're willing to take. If you can't basically do the job and be stellar at that job, at the end of the day, you'll never succeed in that industry. So I think those are my two biggest pieces of advice. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story with us. And I think that me and everyone that's going to be listening is, is really going to feel inspired. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah.